0: All right. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter number two. Philippians chapter number two. If you think about it, you can pray for uh, my little daughter Olivia. She's uh, staying home with mom, sick this morning, so they're having a good old time, little mother daughter bonding time this morning. So. Keep Them in your prayers. I know there's some others that are battling some sickness as well. Philippians chapter number two, verses five through eight, is what we are going to attempt to uh, cover this morning. Over the next uh, really few weeks, uh, we're going to dive into what I would describe as probably one of the most beautiful descriptive passages. Of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it is just rich text, saturated in the gospel, and there is there 's much for us to reflect on as we consider our relationship with the lord um, i don 't know about you, but there is often the struggle that I have with familiarity, what happens with familiarity, things that become Familiar often, if not careful, we can become complacent with those things. The beauty, the magnificence of certain things can just become background. They can just become white noise. They can just kind of become something that's there. Maybe it's a relationship. Think about your uh, relationship with your spouse. Whether you've been married for maybe a few months, a few years, or a few decades, um, you just kind of assume or count on this this fact, maybe that uh, you wake up and that spouse is going to be there. Maybe the excitement and uh, the joy of those dating years and uh, early years of marriage, they they can kind of give way to the demands of life and responsibilities and adulting and bills and finances and, and kids and a host of other challenges. And maybe that spouse, we've never verbalized, but in our heart, maybe that relationship grows a little dim. Think of some of the most magnificent sceneries that our country has to offer, the Grand Canyon, the the Rocky Mountains, these beautiful displays of God's creation for those that may be local to those areas where they just, they wake up and the Rocky Mountains are just there. Maybe I hope that they don't ever just become complacent with that reality, but maybe over time they just lose this reality that, wow, that's really an incredible background and scenery. Maybe it's in Missouri or misery this time of year, we don't, <laughs> I'm having a hard time thinking of something that's good in Missouri in the in the month of July and August. But, uh, you know, maybe it's a, just a good old-fashioned Midwest sunset uh, that we just don't take the time to stop and recognize the beauty and the grandeur that is present in that moment, right? Things that are familiar can just become Complacent in our lives, have you ever fallen prey to that, right? And I think, in, in a similar sense, the gospel for our spiritual lives, our relationship with the Lord as a as a believer, as a Christian, as a as a Christ follower, the gospel, Jesus Christ, the beauty of this redemptive story, can it sometimes just become a little dim in our lives? I'm thankful for rich. Passages of Scripture, like Philippians chapter 2, that we can go to, that we can run to, and that we can remind ourselves of all that Jesus has done. We can remember all that God the Father has provided for us through His Son. We certainly can be thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the, the Spirit of Christ that resides in us for those that have confessed with our mouth and believed in our heart that God hath raised him from the dead, we have been saved. Is that still a glorious truth in your life? The beauty of a wretched sinner being adopted into the family of God. Undeserved. Unmeasured grace. Grace. Boundless mercy applied towards us through Jesus. And certainly Philippians 2 reminds us of these beautiful, beautiful truths. So over the next few weeks, it's an opportunity for us to stop and smell the roses, so to speak, of the gospel. To take an intentional time to slow down and to reflect on and remember Jesus John chapter number one, verse number 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Is that who Jesus is to you? And maybe the cares of this world, maybe struggle with sin. Difficulties at home, difficulties at work, the uncertainty of the future, the chaos that we live in and the society, headlines that are swirling, feels like World War III potentially um, could happen at any moment, right? There's a lot of struggle and difficulty, fear, chaos that can grip our hearts. But friends, this morning, let us look to Christ. Let's run to him, remembering that he says, come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so that's my hope and my prayer this morning as we look to Jesus, that we would gaze into his face. We would soak and linger in the glory of the Lord this morning. And I pray that as we see Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, that we would surrender our hearts to the Holy Spirit and allow him to work, allow him to move and to change us to become more like him Day by day, He is our example, and we are called to have this mind among us, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's open in a word of prayer. We prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God. God, I need you. I need you in this moment to be big. Christ, I pray that your name would go forth with great power. And that we would remember, Jesus, that it's at your name that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that you are Lord. What an incredible truth that is. But we recognize even this morning in our own sinfulness that your name often doesn't carry with it the reverence and awe and majesty that it should. So I pray as we look at these few verses this morning that you would use your word to just do an incredible work that I cannot do. I pray that your word, again, would not return void. That is my hope this morning and a promise that I cling to, that your word will always have its way in our lives. So I pray that you would allow me to get out of the way and that your message would go forth with clarity, with confidence, and with boldness, and that as hearers that we would receive your word in a humble way. We thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. The big idea, excuse me, the title of our message this morning is The Hymn of Christ. The Hymn of Christ. There'll be more explanation on that title as we work through um, our, our expositional study through these few verses. But um, the hymn. Of Christ. And our big idea this morning is this. Just as Jesus displayed perfect humility in the gospel, we too are called to model his life of humble service to others for the glory of God. Just as Jesus displayed perfect humility in the gospel, we too are called to model his life of humble service to others for the glory of God. So this Morning again, by God's grace, we're going to examine verses 5 through 8 next week. We're going to tackle verses 9 through 11. As we work through these few verses, this will really take us full circle as we look at the descent of Christ, his humiliation. From the glories of heaven. And then through this divine act of humility, this willful giving of Himself on the cross, through this sacrifice of becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross, we will observe His ascent and His exaltation. What glorious truths that will be as we have the opportunity to work through. These few verses. So the first point we're going to look at this morning is simply the call to have the same mind of Christ. We're going to look at the call to have the same mind as Christ. If you remember last week, Pastor Dave reminded us that in verses 1 through 4, we were to be unified in our humility. Do you remember that? There was a, a core truth calling us to be unified as the body of Christ, to exemplify Uh, this disposition and this demeanor that has been displayed through the perfect humility of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we were called to have the same mind, being of one mind, of full accord. So then in verse number five, Paul shifts now and clearly lays out this call and challenge to be of Christ's mind. Romans 8, verse number 9. You don't have to turn there. Just a quick supporting reference. Paul says this, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And this is really what we're after this morning. If you are in Christ, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, what then should it look like for us to live out that relationship in Christ, in the context of the body of Christ, in context of the world that He has placed us in, our spheres of influence, to be salt and light, to be ministers of reconciliation, to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ, and to take the good news that Jesus saves. To those that are desperately in need of it. So here Paul is positioning the idea that if we are truly in Christ, we should imitate Jesus. We should imitate Jesus Christ. We should resemble him in our thinking, in our responding, in our loving, in our living, and yes, even in our dying. We should be Christ minded. Have this mind among you. Paul challenges his readers, and as such, he challenges us even today with this reality. Paul, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he envisioned a community of believers always being mindful of Jesus. Let me say that one more time. Paul envisioned a community of believers always being mindful of Jesus. I want us to just take a quick timeout. You say you're pretty early in the message to call a timeout, but we're gonna do it. I want you to just think in this day, up until this moment right now, Saturday, this past week, how often were you simply mindful of Jesus. Interactions in the home, with your spouse, your kids, interactions with neighbors, at the workplace, kids with your neighborhood friends and buddies that you hang out with, you're playing ball with, you're running around the neighborhood with. Were you mindful of Jesus? This is what Paul envisions as he has written this letter to the church at Philippi. It was all about the gospel. For Paul and his challenge to this church, the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it was never just a final event, it was never just a thing to check off, to do, an accomplishment. A destination that we were arrived at. The gospel was never any of those things. For Paul, the gospel was the very breath that he breathed. It was the lifeblood of his very existence. The Jesus that saved him was the Jesus that guided and directed him. It was his hope. It was his joy. It was his peace and satisfaction in this life. Oh, that we would be that community of believers that are constantly and ever mindful of Jesus. What's the result of a community of believers that are mindful of Jesus in everyday life? I didn't say the Milo of life. I did now. But it was there. I thought about it. I know you guys love that word. I put it on the shelf. But what does it look like for, for a community of believers to always be mindful of Jesus? It means that every conversation we have, every interaction that we have, we are going to be the hands and feet of Christ. We are going to exemplify humility. We are going to look to serve others selflessly. We're not going to be coming to church with our demands and preferences. We're going to be coming to church with the towel proverbially and washing feet and serving others and loving others and putting others' needs before ourselves. Why? Because this is what Jesus did. This is how he lived. And so Paul says, have this mind among you. Be Jesus in this world. We can't be Jesus. We can't show the love of Jesus. We can't be the hands and feet of Christ if we're not first mindful of Christ and him working in our life. Are other priorities, other demands, other things more important? Isn't it so easy, friends, to allow other things to slip in to our lives and to start to climb up the priority list in our life? And we go a day, we go a week, we go a month, a quarter, potentially even a year with Jesus Christ and the gospel on the back burner of our life. Oh, that we would be stirred up this morning to remember Jesus and that God would cause us to develop a reflex, a habit of remembering Jesus and being mindful of Jesus, of having this mind among you, which is yours. It is yours. It is possible. It is available. It is ripe for the picking. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, friends, you can walk as Jesus walked. So we should resemble him. We should imitate him. We should be mindful of Jesus. Verses 1 through 4, Paul is the essentially exhorting his readers to have the attitude and the mind that Jesus had. The beauty of this exhortation right here, right out of the gates in verse number five, is that it is 100% enabled by Jesus. It's not anything that we can manufacture. It's not anything that we can produce. We can't be humble as Jesus was humble in our own strength. We can't just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder. Just as Jesus saved us, he enables us and empowers us to live in this God-aware type of way in this world that we live in. So Paul says, have this mind. This is an attitude, a lifestyle. Why? Because you are in Christ. It is yours already. His grace has enabled us through salvation and through that work of sanctification, right? You remember that. It's being set apart. To to sanctify, being set apart what and to whom? To the Lord and from the world from the moment that we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and personal Savior, from that moment that he allows us to experience that gift of faith and we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart and we are saved from that moment on, the Holy Spirit works in our heart using the word of God, using the body of Christ to cause us to become more like him. It's not a snap your fingers, become perfect overnight. It is a progressive work of the Lord, causing us to become more like His Son, Jesus Christ. That happens as we are mindful of and remember Jesus, remember the gospel on a daily basis. When we're mindful of Him in our daily schedule, what often will we put first? Jesus. When we are mindful of Jesus and a stressful situation comes up in our life, we're more often to respond in a way that would honor the Lord, right? So, Starting your day being mindful of the gospel, being mindful of Jesus, having this mind, attitude, lifestyle among us will absolutely change our church, will change your family, change your marriage, not in some three-step type of program, but because the gospel works. The gospel is, is power to live like Jesus lived and to love like Jesus loved. So as we become sanctified, become less like myself and my sin nature and more like Jesus, the one who saved me, we remember which is yours in Christ Jesus. The one who saves is the one who empowers this supernatural work to to take place in and through our lives. We'll look forward to chapter number three. This is probably a familiar verse, but do you remember verse number 10 where Paul desires to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings? And verses 9 and 10, you remember those verses? Paul was so hungry to know his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he wanted to experience the sufferings that Jesus went through. He wanted to experience the resurrection power in his life. He prayed for it. He pursued it. He was passionate about his relationship with the Lord. And everybody around him knew that he was following Jesus. This is a call to have the same mind of Christ. So it's here in verse number five that Paul encourages all believers to be Christ-minded in the way that they think and act toward one another as they remember the common bond and unity that we talked about last week in verses one through four. The unity that we have in not our commonalities, not our likes and dislikes, Not the standards that we keep, but the common bond that we have in Christ, in the gospel. So, this is a call again to have the same mind as Christ. Second point we're going to look at this morning is the example of humility in the life of Christ. So, we've been called to have this mind of Christ. And now Paul's going to take some time and some moments to put on full display of exactly what it looks like to live like Christ. How Christ lived. His attitude, his thoughts, his actions in coming to this earth. He's going to put it on full display so that we have a perfect picture, an example. That by God's grace we can imitate the heart and that mind in our own lives as well. So before we dive deeper into our text, I want to lay just a, a, a quick bit of a foundation by way of context, and hopefully this will help and aid your overall understanding of how this passage is, is structured. It will help us in our overall understanding of what Paul would have us to be mindful of concerning the life and ministry of Jesus. So our entire passage Uh, Verses 5 through 11, again, this is one continuous sentence in the original Greek. So this is one thought. This is one focus point that Paul really doesn't want it to be interrupted or he doesn't want anything to uh, take away from this. It's just one core thought about Jesus Christ and this example of humility. So Paul would have us view this instruction holistically within this broader context. However, verse number six, we see a shift or a change in what we would call the literary form. So up until this this point in uh, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, this has just been typical uh, Pauline writing, uh, Pauline prose. This is just Paul writing a typical letter of instruction, encouragement. There's imperatives. There's challenges. uh, There's Uh, pastoral uh, advice. There's encouragement in the Lord. But here in verse number six, uh, we see a shift or or change again in this literary form from chapter one, really verse 27, down through chapter two, verse number five. We see this normal structure and we see this break at verse number six down through verse number 11. So what do we What do we see Paul shifting to is by way of a different literary form? Well, Paul deploys a new literary device, and he chooses uh, this element of of poetry. So uh, thinking back quickly to my title of our message, it is a hymn of Christ. Might have sounded like an odd title for this passage, but literally Paul structures uh, this section, verses 6 through 11, in the form of a poem, and there is a strong collaboration against uh, with other theologians that this is likely verses six through eleven, one of the early Christian hymns that we have in the New Testament church, uh, which is pretty cool to think about the gospel-centered content of one of the first Christian hymns that we have here. I'm not sure exactly. What that looked like by way of, of instrument and song and, and cadence, uh, but it's, it's fun to consider that there would have been a church, the church of Philippi, that would have gathered and potentially would have sung the truths of verses 6 uh, through 11 here. So we have uh, this poem, and Paul organizes verses 6 through 11 with this poetic structure, and he draws on, and at times directly quotes uh, from some passages in the Old Testament, Uh, here in these few verses, we'll see passages from Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah 52, and Isaiah 53, that uh, famous uh, chapter there in Isaiah of the suffering servant, which we actually read last month during our communion. But these are beautiful, rich, messianic passages from the prophet Isaiah, and uh, Paul would have been looking back to those writings, and he would have been incorporating uh, some of this truth Directly quoting from it at times right here in these, these few verses of verses 6 through 11. And, and to go to a step further, this hymn would have been a core element of, of worship. Um, which is again where we, we get our sermon title, The Hymn of Christ. So our structure in verses 6 through 8, just to break this down uh, briefly and then we'll jump back into um, our focus on what he did do. What Jesus, so the question that we'll start with, what did Jesus not do in verse number six? Let's read it. Verse number six, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the mind that Jesus had and as such this is the mind that Paul is calling us to have among us which is ours in Christ Jesus so although Jesus was God he did not count or consider his deity the reality that he was God is something to exploit or take advantage of for his own gain Did not count equality a thing to be grasped. This literally has the idea of a white, white, excuse me, knuckled grip on something, right? Have you ever... Been so scared in your life that maybe going down a roller coaster or something happened and you just, you just grabbed onto something and, man, it just took you a moment to let your heartbeat kind of calm down before you could let go of your, your grip on that. This is the type of mental picture that we have here of, of Jesus on, on the negative side. If he, he would have counted this as a privilege and a right to exercise, he would have had this white-knuckled type of grip on the reality that he is God, that he was certainly a part of deity, a part of that perfect triune God. Three persons, one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, Jesus, was fully God. But he did not count equality with God something to exploit or take advantage of for his own gain. We see this word form in the form of, of God, the form of a servant. We see this word in verse number 6 and verse number 7. It's the only time that we see this word in the New Testament. So this, this hymn would have been reminding the readers of what the pre-existing state of Jesus as God Paul would want them to come uh, to no other conclusion that this reality that Jesus, the one that had saved him, that that had come and and gone to a cross and and shed his blood and went to a tomb and and rose again on the third day, that that Jesus was not just a good man, a good prophet, somebody that had some good teachings, somebody that that did some really neat miracles and did some cool things on this earth. No, he was God. That was the conclusion that Paul would want his readers to come to. And so, as Paul worked through this poetic hymn of Christ, he was reminding the readers of the pre existing state of Jesus as God in this world we live in. That is, in their perspective, a fallacy. Sure, Jesus was a good prophet. He did some good things. You know, if you want to follow his teachings and, and, and be a good person and, and love others, great. But there is much hostility and much rejection that comes when you assert that Jesus is God. If you'll remember, Jesus got himself into some trouble with some crowds, some Pharisees, some Sadducees, as you remember years back as we went through the Gospel of John. Jesus claimed to be God. I and my Father are one. The high Priestly prayer of Christ in John chapter number 17, Jesus clearly establishes himself as God. The realities of who Jesus is absolutely cannot be understated right here in verse number six. Paul understood Jesus as 100% fully God. And in this description of the descent and humiliation of Jesus, Paul leaves no question as to who Jesus is, but he also gives some great insight into the God, excuse me, into the example of humility that Jesus put on display. Even the deity of God was not something Jesus was going to leverage for his own advantage. He was God. He was equal with God. And he had every right. And certainly could have chosen to remain in that state. But it wasn't something that Jesus had to hold on to. Because Jesus had the mind of humility. Because he knew this eternal redemptive plan. That the three persons of the Godhead were constantly working out in all stages of history. Jesus knew that he was plan A and there was no plan B. There was only one way for a remnant to be secured. There was only one way for sinful mankind to be brought back into relationship with God the Father. And that was through the humiliation and the descent of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus had the mind of humility. What did Jesus now do? Let's look at verse number seven. Verse number seven says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of, of men, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It should be no surprise here that in this verse, verse number seven, that the understanding and interpretation of Jesus, who is God and who is equal with God, this Jesus that emptied himself, that this verse has been the cause of... Um, much division. Um, So by God's grace, uh, we're going to look into God's word and attempt to make sense of what God means by Jesus emptying himself. So there's really three main interpretations that are present. I'm going to give you these uh, these three interpretations, just for your own benefit, and you kind of get an idea of how this idea of Jesus emptying himself may be viewed in other uh, strands of um, denominations or, or or Christendom. We first have the canonic theory christ this views that Christ emptied himself by divesting himself of divinity, divine attributes, divine glory, or divine power literally that Jesus ceased to be God, that he was 100% fully man, uh, but not God when he took on flesh, when he emptied himself. The second uh, theory or interpretation uh, more clearly would be the incarnation view. This would simply believe that Christ emptied himself by becoming a human being in the form of a slave or servant. This is a, the most literal hermeneutic that we can have or interpretation that we can have of verse number seven. And then we have a third interpretation. This is the servant of the Lord, a portrait. This would be uh, merely just a metaphor of understanding this concept of Jesus emptying himself as an echo of the scriptural picture of the servant of the Lord who poured out his life to death. It would, it would stop short of really establishing the God-man, Christ Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, uh, maintaining full deity while taking on fully the flesh and the servanthood of mankind. So the big question surrounding a proper interpretation of this word emptied really starts with asking of what did Christ empty himself of? What did Jesus Christ empty himself of? I believe this basic question can be best understood within the context of the passage. So let's, let's read this one more time. Verse number seven, but emptied himself, How? Or by what means? By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And we just read a very strict, literal, historical hermeneutic on this. A basic reading aligns very clearly with an incarnation v- a view. The verb translated as emptied should be best understood and defined by the participles that follow. Verse number, se- number seven, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus emptied himself by taking and becoming. One commentator said it this way, a proper interpretation of Christ's self-emptying was accomplished not by subtracting from his deity, but by adding to it. God remaining God, Jesus remaining Jesus, but now adding to his deity, what? Human flesh, taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. This was the incarnation of Jesus. The son of God taking on flesh. We don't often read Matthew 1 outside uh, Christmas season. uh, But a good reminder here. Matthew chapter number 1 verses 21 through 23. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Jesus taking on flesh. Verse number seven, when viewed and interpreted within the whole view of scripture will lead to one of the most beautiful and important tenets of doctrine, and that is the incarnation of Christ. Friends, we have to hold to these core tenets of scripture. You remember the early New Testament church uh, that's described in the book of Acts, Acts chapter two, verse 42. They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' doctrine. Fellowship, prayer, breaking of bread. This is what the early church committed themselves to, the apostles' doctrine. They had to believe that Jesus came and took on flesh, and they had to keep on believing that. They had to stay committed to these core doctrines that were passed on from the apostles. Jesus was more than a good teacher. He was more than a good prophet. The tomb is empty. Why? Because he was God, and when his fleshly body was laid in a tomb, he alone had power to defeat sin, death, and hell and rise from the dead. John chapter number one. I read verse number 14 at the beginning of our service, but I'll read uh, a few more verses here just remembering the beauty of the incarnation, Jesus coming and taking on flesh. John chapter number one, verse number one. In the beginning was the word. This is Jesus. And the word Was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, this is Jesus, was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. The world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Are you thankful this morning that Jesus came and took on flesh? Are you thankful for the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? This isn't just pie in the sky theology on a doctrinal statement. Friends, this is practical and real. This has value to our own relationship with Jesus Christ. To know that Jesus has come. Emmanuel, God with us. So when Christ emptied himself, we know that Christ divested himself not of his divine nature, for this would be impossible, as he was fully God. But Christ certainly did let go of the glories, the prerogatives of heaven that would have been due to him as God, as deity. So emptied means a divestiture of a position or prestige. How did the Son of God divest himself of position and prestige? Through the incarnation. Paul uses these two phrases By taking the form of a servant and by being born in the likeness of men, the only way for the Son of God to take on the form of a slave was to enter the world and to be born as a man through the virgin birth of Mary. Another core tenet, apostles doctrine that we must hold fast to in this day that we live in. Friends, due to time, We're going to hit a strategic pause button this morning. We'll pick it up next week, but I want to be sure that the impact of these foundational truths of the gospel, of who Jesus is, the process of Jesus coming to this earth and providing a way for salvation, that these truths will ring true in our heart and our life. The Lord will draw us to himself in the days ahead as we continue to focus and meditate on these realities. So closing comments, through the humiliation of Christ, we see his eternal love on full display that God would be willing to take on flesh, the form of a servant, literally the idea of a slave, to take on the likeness of mankind. When he was God in in heaven, that he would be willing to lay that aside, to empty himself of that. We see his love, God's redemptive plan at work. God giving of his only son, the son willingly embracing this call to humility and perfectly fulfilling the will of the Father. Jesus taking on flesh, being born as a man while remaining fully God, living a perfect life. Without sin, going to a cross, shedding his blood, atoning for sin, being buried, and rising again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the good news of the gospel. This is our hope. This is our focus. This is all that we have. What was accomplished through Jesus' coming? There was a ransom. There was a ransom that was paid through the life of Jesus. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He didn't come for those that were of no need of a physician. He didn't come for those that were healthy and rich. He came for those that were sick and poor. Those that were lost. Sheep that had wandered astray. The shepherd running after them and bringing them back into the fold. This is what Jesus has done. So mankind, you and me, are now able to fellowship and be in relationship with God the Father once again. Praise God for this hymn of Christ. Next week we'll finish verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. And I hope you will continue to soak in this passage even in this week as we look forward uh, to all that God will do through this passage. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this hymn of Christ. We thank you. Uh, for everything that we have been given uh, in this passage by way of insight and nuances and just remembering who you are. I pray now as we continue to linger at a cross, we continue to peer into an empty tomb, we continue to reflect on our own sinfulness and the holiness of, of your person. I pray that we would even now begin to prepare our hearts to come and in fellowship joyfully around the lord's table, remembering all that you have given us in the gospel. Father, do a work, we pray in Jesus.